Hello and welcome to episode 51 of the Thinking LSAT podcast in San Francisco, California. I'm Nathan Fox and with me in Washington, D.C. is Ben Olson. Ben, how's it going? It's going good. Just had a few days off for Christmas and so kind of getting used to the relaxed lifestyle you don't take as much time off as i do um you you had a class all the way through december right yeah so it started right after the december lsat and went until oh like a week and a half ago and then it's going to pick up again tonight and go until the february test wow wow you're a hard-working man ben (laughs) i did have a class uh that started in january before but just found it hard to kind of fit that schedule into four weeks. Yeah. So for my, because nor- my classes are normally eight to 10 to 12 weeks, depending yeah. on which test it is. So I just said, eh, let's start it in December. And you find that people do want to take LSAT classes over the holidays? It's like, for me, it's so quiet, but maybe that's just because I always choose to not run a class in December. Yeah. Um, there seems to be more interest for a class that starts right after the December LSAT than a little bit later, at least here in D.C. I also think that D.C. is kind of an exception to a lot of places because there are so many people who want to get JDs even though they're not necessarily interested in law because of people working on the Hill and their higher-ups have JDs even though they're not practicing. So it's just a continual flow of people in D.C. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I've been watching but, a lot of House of Cards lately. You watch House of Cards? Uh, you know, I did for a little while, and then I just got off of it. And then I took a Virgin American flight to San Francisco, actually. And they had it free on the back of the seat in front of me. Uh-huh. So I ended up watching like five or six episodes back to back and got Oof. into it again. Oof. But I haven't watched it since. <laughs> Have you seen... There's a, He has a... Um, they have a website up now uh fu 2016 yeah <laughs> did you see that i saw the ad for it or, <laughs> yeah i saw like it was like a trailer like what is this oh fu 2016 yeah i'm definitely casting my vote for frank underwood there you go yeah, yeah. <laughs> um so today on the show we are going to answer a couple questions from listeners uh curtis asks about importance of internships and volunteer work when applying to law school and diane asks about the importance of financial resources and how big of a difference having money makes uh, on the lsat and in law school and then we're going to do at least one uh, logical reasoning question from the june 2007 lsat uh ben you have anything you want to add to that or should we just dive right in no that sounds good Cool. Why don't you go ahead and um, read us some of this email then from Curtis? Yeah, so Curtis is, he writes us and he's, he's 33 and he has an associate's degree in a foreign language. He works at a grocery store in Austin, Texas right now. And I guess he says he could keep doing that if he wanted to, but he doesn't. And he's always wanted to be a lawyer, so, um, and he's pretty interested in this stuff. He listens to podcasts about the Supreme Court and so on. So this is more than just a, a passive interest, I think. And he says that he's decided that it's time to give it a shot. And so he's enrolled in a bachelor's program at the University of Texas. 
And his current GPA is 3.44, but he thinks he can boost it up to just under a 4.0. So um, it sounds like it hasn't happened yet, but that's what he's planning to do. And he took the June 2007 LSAT after listening to several of our podcasts, and he got a 146. Um, He doesn't think that's a very good score, but he just, um, that's, he's ready to keep going. And this is kind of where he gets into his question. He says, I'm less worried about grades and test scores than I am about actually getting into law school, competing against much younger candidates with more impressive applications aside from grades and scores. And so then he asks, what are some opportunities I should seek out that would help me stand out to an admissions committee, internships, volunteer work, activism, so on? What types of letters of recommendation are most impressive? Do I need to have a senator on speed dial? These are the questions that are haunting me. That's what he writes. Any reaction to that? Um, it's pretty common. That we get these kinds of questions a lot. And I think that people really overestimate the importance of all of those other factors besides LSAT and GPA. I agree completely. I don't know why people do that. Um, I think people don't real like, you know. He's saying he started with a 146 LSAT, right? And so he he thinks that's poor. And I, I guess maybe what he's thinking is like, well, my LSAT score is not going to be that hot. What else can I do? Kind mm-hmm. of thing. Mm-hmm. And. Um, boy, our first prescription is always going to be just work as much as you can to get that LSAT score as high as you possibly can. Yeah. Um, 146 is by no means a bad score. Uh, Almost everyone improves their LSAT score by 10 points or more. So I would expect that if he started with a cold 146, he's going to end up with a high 150s LSAT score, almost kind of at a minimum. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, if he puts in the work. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, right, if he puts in the time, puts in the work, which he claims he's going to do. Um, he also said his timeline is funny, right? He said, I'm not going to take the LSAT and t- any sooner than June of 2016 if I decide to be very aggressive. Um, I mean, that would give him a full, even if he hasn't started until this podcast comes out, that would still give him a full five months worth of prep. Um, yeah. which that is not very aggressive. Five months is plenty of time to prepare yourself for the LSAT. Yeah. So, I mean, if he it, if he started now and he kind of chipped away at it a little bit every day, um, I don't see any reason why he couldn't score 156 or higher, 160 or higher. And if he has a three-point some 3.5 or above with a 160. I mean, that's a very attractive law school candidate. Yeah. Right? For sure. <clears throat> I think, like you're saying, his biggest mistake is being worried about these extracurricular stuff and not as much about his GPA and LSAT score. I, I guess he seems to think that he's going to nail those things or he's going to improve them. Um, but he needs to make that his primary focus. It's interesting, too, because he seems to be worried that his extracurricular stuff is going to be bad, where I I hear a lot of people, they put too much weight on this extra stuff, 
and they think it's so good. They think, oh, well, I have, I have everything that I need for my internships. I have great work opportunities and stuff like that. But I don't think it's going to help them as much as they think it is. No. They're, <clears throat> we talked about this a lot on the show. They're making their first um, – their first – they might not be making decisions based on the index formula, but they are absolutely sorting applications based on the index formula. Mm-hmm. And so we talked about this on the show before, right? It's a some combination of your LSAT score and your GPA. And um, they they take every application they get and they create one number for you based on your LSAT score and your GPA. Mm-hmm. Your internships are not part of that index formula. Your volunteer work is not part of that index formula. Your resume, not part of the index formula. The index formula is based only on your undergraduate GPA and your LSAT score. And they then have one number for every applicant and they prefer the people that are at the top of that list. It's a sensible way to sort through thousands of applications. Um, It's just, you know, it's it's not perfect, but that's the reality and that's what they do. And they're not going to see your internship stuff until they've already decided that you're a worthy candidate based on that index uh, number that they give you. So, yeah, uh, Curtis, you need to control the stuff that you can actually control uh, your GPA, you've got classes remaining and, you know, you're talking about raising your GPA. That sounds great. Your LSAT score is a really um, a number that you can work with. You know, you can change that number <laughs> by mm-hmm. by prepping. And um, your, I would say his, even more more than his grades, I think his primary focus needs to be getting himself his 160 LSAT. Yeah. Um, although one thing that is interesting about him that a lot of listeners probably are not in a situation like is in the sense that their GPA is already determined or they're in their last semester. So it's not going to make much of a difference. sounds like he still has the opportunity to raise it. And so he should make sure that he focuses on it. You know? Yeah. I mean, he, but even that though, you know, he, he probably can't move it as much as he thinks he can. Right. It, mm-hmm. it, it actually doesn't sound like he has done the math, but if he already has an AA, AAs are two year degrees, right? Mm-hmm. I'm assuming yeah. he's done half of his college credits at a minimum. That's right. Okay. Well, if he has a 3.44, then the most he can possibly raise his GPA, if he gets a 4.0 the rest of the way, yeah, the most he could possibly raise his GPA is to like a 3.7. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So... I mean, that's good. That's, that's great. Don't get me wrong. I mean, that's awesome. But it can be really hard to, to raise an already decently high GPA. And, you know, sometimes getting an A requires, like, dozens out of hours of more work than getting mm-hmm. an A minus. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I'll, I'm not telling them don't get an A. I'm just saying if you were going to, if you were going to like totally kill yourself on one thing, I don't think the thing to totally kill yourself on is your grades. I think you should totally kill yourself on the LSAT. Yeah, no, uh, I completely agree. And I think that you can have so such a bigger impact with your LSAT score than your GPA, right. but kind of stepping back and just looking at the big picture here, he's 33. Maybe 
what he should be doing is focusing on his GPA and then taking the LSAT later, unless there's some reason he really feels like he should apply this coming cycle. You know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I'm not pushing him into the LSAT by by any means. I mean, he needs to like work backward from whatever his his desired enrollment date is. Mm-hmm. I mean, if he finished his AA in 2014, maybe he's finishing his bachelor's in 2016. Mm-hmm. Fall mm-hmm. of 2016. Uh, we're just speculating, but if it's fall of tw- or spring of 2016, he's finishing his bachelor's and he wants to start law school. Maybe then in fall of 2016. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that certainly could be the case. Mm-hmm. I, it's just a little confusing here because he just says, "I've decided it's time to give it a shot." So is he just starting now? And if so, then he has even more time. You know. He does say with his bachelor's, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, I can complete the the program quickly. I don't know what that means though. No, but who knows? Yeah. So if he if he has two years though, I don't know. I mean, I would maybe put. So anyway, you know, let's put it this way: we're 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 telling him, don't worry about the internships, don't worry about the volunteer work, don't worry about the activism. you know, all that stuff is great if you're genuinely passionate about it and if you're doing those things because you want to um, explore areas of law and you want to make contacts and that kind of stuff, that's great. By all means, you know, do do that stuff. But yeah. if you're doing that stuff because you think it's going to help your law school application, you're you're worrying about the wrong thing. Yeah. You need to, the, the much bigger lever is your grades and your LSAT score. Um, I would say same thing with letters of recommendation. People spend so much time worrying about what types of letters are good and all that. And it's like, you know, you got to get your LSAT score and your GPA sorted out before you worry about that stuff. Mm, Um, do you need to have a Senator on speed dial? You know, um, no, you don't, (laughs) you need to get a good LSAT score. That's what you need to do. Yeah. And one thing that's sort of hinted at there is that it'd be valuable to have a senator writing your letter of recommendation, but that itself doesn't even matter. You really want someone who knows you, but so many people think, oh, the big name is going to be helpful. And no, it's not. the name is not, the, the name on a letter of recommendation is not going to do it for you. I mean, if you were a senator's aide and the senator was actually your boss, then of course that can do a lot for you. Mm-hmm. But calling in favors because, you know, your cousin has the same babysitter as the senator. Um, <clears throat> that's just gonna not help you at all. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. Do we have more for Curtis? No. Good luck, Curtis. Uh, yeah, if you decide that this is something you want to pursue, you want to be pursuing it with the best GPA and best LSAT score you possibly can. All that other stuff is not gonna matter all that much. Uh, it, it's so funny, huh, to have a 33-year-old saying. Oh, I'm worried about these younger applicants because they're going to have more impressive applications aside from grades and scores, mm-hmm. which they mm-hmm. absolutely aren't. Yeah. Why would they? I mean, just because they did some like cheesy internship while they were in college one summer, that doesn't mean anything to anybody. <laughs> let's, yeah. let's be honest. I mean, all those all those resume building kinds of things that young people do. Um, it, it just looks, it's, it's always so obvious when it was like, oh, I see you did this 10 hours a week for one mm-hmm. semester so that you could put a line on your resume. Yeah. Great. It's also 
the place that they like to trump up where they were or what firm they were at, but we all know that in the vast majority of these cases, you're just doing getting coffee, making work. copies. No, no offense to anybody. No, uh, but no, it's just totally. that's the nature of these these internships at the beginning. Now, if you did something really substantive, that's awesome, and you should write about it. But I think that's more the exception than the rule. I would, I would say absolutely. And you know, even in that case, um, with if an applicant has a one forty six and a great internship, an awesome substantive internship, but they have a one forty six LSAT score. And yep. meanwhile, Curtis comes in with a 156 LSAT score. I would say that those are not even there. The 146 and the great internship are not even in the same league as a 156 with, with no internship at all. Experience. Yeah. With, I worked at a grocery store. Yeah. So what? I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I, I think people don't understand like what the really big levers are in their application. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, thanks, Curtis. Thanks for writing in. Um, should we move on to Diane's question? Diane writes a very short email here. Um, she says, is success on the LSAT and ultimately admittance to a high ranked law school skewed toward individuals who have the financial resources to take an LSAT prep course? Uh, I would say yes. (laughs) They are skewed towards individuals who have financial resources because that gives you time to prepare that maybe others don't have. Um, and but fancy help. And fancy help. And yeah. all the materials. Yes. Is it skewed? Yes. Is the world fair? Absolutely not. Um, that's that's our short answer. Our, what's yeah. our, our longer answer? Longer answer would be uh, it's way overranked. I mean, I think that a lot of people work really hard and are not even really hard. They just work hard and they do well on the test. And other people who have these resources don't work hard um, and they don't make progress. Time and money will not help you get a higher score on the test necessarily, um, especially if you're not thinking about what you're doing or reviewing the questions you got wrong and trying to understand it if you're just breezing through things then nope it's not going to help and there's a lot of people out there who don't spend hardly anything they go read about it online or they listen to the podcast or whatever and they just take a lot of practice sections and they end up doing very well yeah i would say that money is neither necessary nor sufficient Mm -hmm. it certainly helps right money will strengthen your chances yeah. But it is not necessary and it is not sufficient. And it's not necessary because many people are able to make it to law school without money. Just like Ben's saying, there are free resources out there. Um, you know, you can borrow an old LSAT book from somebody. There's there's ways to get access to the tests and there's ways to get old books and free free resources online. I mean, there's 15 hours worth of video on my website that anybody can register for with an email address and watch 15 hours worth of classroom lessons and do quizzes and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Um, there And there are really, there are like an unbelievable amount of resources out there now like that. Um, 
plenty of people do, they go that route and make it to law school. So money is definitely not necessary. It's also not sufficient. If it were sufficient, then everybody with money would just breeze right into law school. And um, I've had students who have paid a lot of money for tutoring, but not done any homework in between the tutoring sessions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, those people then are puzzled why they're, why the, <laughs> why the tutoring is not working for them. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, well, I'm sorry. Uh, it's a, it's a, te- in a lot of ways, the LSAT is a test of how hard you can work. Yeah. And if you're not working hard, um, then yeah, it's going to be a pretty big obstacle. So no amount of money is going to solve that if you're, if you're not like, able willing and able to sit and do the work yeah um i don't know do we have more we want to add to that not necessarily to that but i do want to talk about something i just read the other day it was uh from jerry seinfeld i guess uh i'm gonna mess this up but the idea i won't and that is that to get his creative juices flowing he uh just put a calendar on his wall and as long as he wrote some, well, he wrote, as long as he wrote, because <laughs> he's writing, you know, these comedy scripts or whatever, every, uh, that day, then he would check off that day. And his goal was to get that, the number of X's going and it's a chain, and then to not break that chain. Yep. And I think it's just a really powerful tool. It's so simple. You just print out a calendar. You say, hey, look, here's the next three. He did a year calendar, but for someone shooting for the February LSAT, you just need to print out December and January or just January at this point. And then you put it up on your wall and you say, every day that I study for at least 15 minutes or at least 30 minutes, whatever your goal is, but set it low, um, I'm going to check it off and don't break that chain yeah he does it with like something yeah a big fat like felt pen i think Mm -hmm. and he puts a big x like crosses out the entire day once he once he does his thing whatever his thing is yeah i've read about this in the context of just um habit forming more generally Mm -hmm. uh you could you could have multiple of these calendars um you know for example if you were going to try to stick with um inbox zero which we've talked mm-hmm. about before as a productivity tool. Yeah. If you were going to try to stick with Inbox Zero, you could have a separate calendar uh, on your wall somewhere by your desk for just, okay, every day I'm going to get to zero in my inbox. And when I get to zero, I just have to get to zero once during the day. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to get to zero in my inbox one time, and then I'm going to make a big-ass X over that day on the calendar. Mm-hmm. And then that's it for the day. And then I just have to do it again tomorrow. Yeah. So yeah, doing that every single day for LSAT studying, um, I think is really, really useful. It's amazing how much work you can get done if you just do a little bit every day. Yeah. And there's power in, in, I think a lot of times people are underwhelmed by 15 minutes or 30 minutes, but if you set a small goal and you do it every day, the odds of you doing a lot more on several of those days, I think is much higher than if you set a big goal and do it once a week and feel discouraged and don't really get the momentum going. Yeah. Um, fitness, I guess, is a good example of that, right? Like you mm-hmm. can't you can't do eight hours at the gym on a Saturday and think that that's going to be good for the week. It's, it's so hard to do that eight hours, plus you'll feel shitty afterward. 
And instead, you should probably be thinking more in terms of like, well, I'm going to go on a 20-minute walk every day and just check off every single day. And if you add up your miles, you know, at the end of that week, you will have done something pretty significant, um, even if you're doing it only in little tiny bite-sized chunks. So if you're listening to this and you're, you know, don't have the resources to like hire me or hire Ben to be your personal LSAT tutor... um, there are still plenty of ways that you can get it done with the LSAT if you have like the discipline to just chip away at it. Yeah. Great. Um, want to move on to some logical reasoning? Yeah, let's do it. Cool. So this is the June 2007 LSAT, uh, freely available. If you just Google June 2007 LSAT, you'll find it. We're in section two, which is logical reasoning. Yeah. And we're now on question number 14. Uh, You want to go ahead and read it, Ben? Sure. So 14 says, a cup of raw milk after being heated in a microwave oven to 50 degrees Celsius contains half its initial concentration of a particular enzyme, lysozyme. Um, Okay. Okay. I'm going to stop there for a half second. What, sure. Any thoughts on that? <clears throat> um, no, it's a fairly easy to understand fact, I guess. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, seems like heating or heating in a microwave, uh, raw milk, makes this change. It cuts the concentration of some enzyme in half. It is a comp, you know, lysozyme, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of students would be like getting afraid there. It said enzyme and it said lysozyme. Mm-hmm. Oh, not to mention they're talking about temperatures in Celsius. Yeah. Ooh, scary. You know, so it's like, ooh, this is science now. And I think a lot of people would freak out and like potentially skip at that point. I think that would be a really bad mistake, though. Yeah. I don't think that this has anything to do with science. I think it's just a fact and you don't need to know what lysozyme is. Mm-hmm. You just need to know that there's half as much now as there was before we put this thing in the microwave. Yeah. Okay. Um, if, however, the milk reaches that temperature through exposure to a conventional heat source of 50 degrees Celsius, it will contain nearly all of its initial concentration of the enzyme. Hmm. Okay, so there seems to be something about heating it in a microwave that changes the amount of this enzyme, right? If you if you heat it to 50 degrees Celsius with some other way, it's nearly all there. There's some loss, but you do it in a microwave and it's cut in half. So, um, hmm. Yeah, and the conclusion says, therefore, what destroys the enzyme is not heat but microwaves which generate heat. And yeah, I mean, I, I got to argue with that. Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it does seem, it seems like there's something different about doing it in the microwave, but there's actually a bit in that second sentence that made me really kind of, it, it just like, you know, I'm, I'm tuned into the LSAT kind of tricks that they like to pull. Mm hmm. And it doesn't say 
it, it, it's, it's just a few extra words in there that got me kind of concerned. It said, if, however, the milk reaches that temperature through exposure to a conventional heat source of 50 degrees Celsius, it will contain nearly all of its initial concentration of the enzyme. It didn't just say, if we did this by, uh, by conventional heat. It said, if we do this by conventional heat of 50 degrees. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm now thinking that this actually seems like a very weird way to heat up a cup of milk. Okay. We're, we're going to heat it up to 50 degrees by exposing it to exactly 50 degree heat. Is that how the world works? Um, uh, well, it seems like you'd want to heat it up to something higher for to transfer that heat to the milk, but is that what you're thinking? Well, yeah, I mean, if I'm, if I'm doing this on the stove, right? Mm -hmm. I, I, yeah, I understand that I'm going to heat up the milk to a, a I'm not going to, I don't want the milk to be a, a hot enough to burn my mouth. Mm -hmm. So if I've decided that I want the milk to be 50 degrees, fine. But I think the flame on my burner is a lot hotter than 50 degrees. How long would it take to raise something to 50 degrees by exposing it to exactly 50 degree heat? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know anything about the transfer of heat to yeah. one thing to another. No, I don't know anything about science either. So it's like, but I mean, that's where in, that's where my skepticism lies about this argument, right? Because we're not supposed to agree with this argument. We're supposed to try to try to poke holes in it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So if I could just ask one question, it would be, wait, what is this conventional heat source of exactly 50 degrees Celsius? Is that really a thing? Hmm. That's like you're doing it in like an immersion circulator thing or something, right? Like you're, you don't want it to go ever higher than 50 degrees. Yeah. And then I have a feeling that that might be kind of related to the answer ultimately. I guess, um, yeah, that's interesting. My my initial uh, skepticism came up when it says, therefore what destroys the enzyme is not heat, but microwaves, which generate heat. Um, we don't, all we know, I, I guess, it's just very specific. It's like, well, it's not this thing, but it is that thing. Like, it still could be, both somehow or the interaction between the two i don't know I, I just felt like it was a very strong conclusion ruling out heat so presumptively yeah it's a cause and effect argument uh not only does it conclude that uh heat is not the cause but it also concludes that microwaves are the cause mm -hmm. uh, of this enzyme uh reduction <clears throat> Yeah, and I agree. It has to do. There's something. There seems to be something about the microwave, but I'm not sure what it is or if it's the interaction of the microwave with the heat. This just. It's just a very definitive conclusion, which yeah. is almost always the problem, right? It's very clear cut, and this is kind of. The evidence doesn't provide such a clear cut conclusion. The uh, question stem says, "Which one of the following, if true, most seriously weakens the argument?" Um, that's obviously a weakened question. Mm -hmm. What are we looking for on a on a weakened question? What let's just talk about like kind of 
the nature of the correct answer. So the correct answer is usually going to go after a problem in the argument, which we may or may not fully recognize yet. But it's it itself is a new piece of evidence which is going to cast doubt on the conclusion itself. Um, and it's not going to change any of the initial evidence. The initial evidence is still true. It's just that it's going to really go after the assumptions that the argument is making and we might be making as well and not realizing it. And then we say, oh, wait a sec, I was assuming that was true or not true, and if this is actually the opposite of what I thought, this is a serious problem. Okay, and we're looking to cast doubt on the conclusion of the argument. Again, the conclusion was um, a causal conclusion, and it said what destroys the enzyme is not heat. It is not heat. The cause is not heat. The cause instead is microwaves. Yeah. That's the conclusion. So we're looking for an answer that might actually say well not so fast maybe it is heat mm-hmm. uh, oh and or not so fast maybe it is not actually the microwaves yeah okay cool cool go ahead so a heating a raw heating raw milk in a microwave oven to a temperature of 100 degrees celsius destroys nearly all of the lysozyme initially present in that milk Okay, I. To me, this actually. Well, okay. It's weird because it's dealing with a totally different set of circumstances, but by saying that you get it to 100 degrees, that does sort of go against the idea that it doesn't have anything to do with heat, but we're still doing it in a microwave. So something about the microwave could be destroying it. I don't know. Um, Yeah, we already know that doing it in a microwave does destroy enzymes mm-hmm. and so all we're doing here is doing it in a microwave more yeah. to a higher temperature mm-hmm. and more of the enzymes are being destroyed i don't see how that weakens the idea that a micro that the microwaves are what's doing it yeah well the, the and the conclusion says it's not heat and this sort of it, it gives you a temperature yeah, a higher but, temperature. But it was done in the microwave. It was done in the microwave. I, I guess mean, if A said heating raw milk via conventional sources to a temperature of 100 degrees destroys nearly all of the lysozyme, then there it might be, well, hey, wait a minute. This was clearly not microwaves. I think... Right? But since they yeah. did it in a microwave... Yeah, they, they did it in a microwave. Yeah. I think moving quickly, uh, I'm just going off of my gut reaction right now as I'm reading this, I would probably keep this answer open. I'm assuming that's probably different than you, but I would keep it open with a huge chip on my shoulder. I do this sometimes. I'll, I'll have an answer, and I and instead of thinking about it too much, I think, well, maybe, but I don't really like it. And then I'll read another answer, and if I feel like that answer is better, then I'll just go back and cross out the first one okay. without even thinking too much more about it. Okay. So, anyways, but I think you had to cross this one out at this point. Is that yeah, right? but, you know, when I cross stuff out, I mean, I, it's not like I am ever 100%, like, for sure that's not the answer. Because sometimes I'll cross out all five, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, yeah, I don't love it. I probably would put a tick mark across the A. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't spend very much time thinking about it. 
I think that's actually pretty important. I mean, you know, I have a presumption that this is the wrong answer because four out of five answer choices are wrong. Mm-hmm. So if I start reading it and it's for some reason I don't, if it doesn't jump out at me as like, hey, yeah, I'm a weakener, um, I would just say, well, I assumed you were not the answer and now I even more assume you're not the answer. Mm-hmm. And I would pretty quickly just be moving on to B rather than spending much more time with A. Yeah. So B says enzymes in raw milk that are destroyed through excessive heating can be replaced by adding enzymes that have been extracted from other sources. Okay, this okay. one this one would definitely be crossed out. Um, who cares if they can be replaced? That's not really the point about how they got no. destroyed. There's no way. That's just completely irrelevant. Yeah. Okay, so C says a liquid exposed to a conventional heat source of exactly 50 degrees Celsius will reach that temperature more slowly than it would if it were exposed to a conventional heat source hotter than 50 degrees Celsius. <laughs> so this, uh, okay, this is the science issue we we're talking about. Mm, what do you think about this? Is this doing anything? I just don't see how it does anything. I mean, I'm sure it's true that mm-hmm. if you if your burner was exactly 50 degrees, it's probably going to take all day for the milk to reach 50 degrees. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that's a true fact. And if you had a burner that was 400 degrees, that would get your milk up to 50 degrees a lot faster. Yeah. But what does the speed of getting up to temperature have to do with anything? I mean, I think I you would, you'd have to be helping C in order to make it the answer, right? If you added to C, if you added, um, and speed at which a liquid reaches temperature has an effect on whether the enzymes are destroyed. Or something like that, you know. Then, then it might be like the beginning of a, of a weakener. Yeah. But otherwise, we you know we don't have that premise in the argument. So you're you're like you would be adding that to see yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, generally speaking, if you have to help an answer choice, it's probably not the answer. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I agree. I mean, this this doesn't even talk about destroying or the enzymes or anything. It's just. Yeah. Okay, so I would cross this out. So okay. my, so far for me, I'd have A with a chip on my shoulder, and B and C would be clearly crossed out. Okay. Then D, milk that has been heated in a microwave oven does not taste. Okay. Not I'm sure I would even this. read the rest of that one. <laughs> uh, just for kicks, it says, does not taste noticeably different from milk that has been briefly heated by the exposure to a conventional heat source irrelevant nothing to do with enzymes yeah yeah taste gone okay Okay. e heating any liquid by microwave creates small zones within it that are much hotter than the overall temperature that the liquid will ultimately reach oh um okay so this you know this is interesting because this kind of um this kind of goes back to, I think, why I was slightly hanging on to A, because it talked about the 100 degrees, and it's like, oh, maybe the temperature does have something to do with mm-hmm. getting rid of the enzyme. Mm-hmm. But this is saying, yeah, you can have pockets that are much hotter, destroying the enzyme potentially, and then the, but the overall temperature could still be at 50 degrees Celsius or whatever. And so 
we can stick with the original facts of going up to 50 degrees Celsius overall, but have these pockets that are destroying the enzyme because they're much hotter. Yeah, E, e says, hey, wait a minute. Uh, without changing any of the facts, mm -hmm. if you add E to the facts, it then points away from microwaves themselves and points back to heat mm -hmm. as the actual culprit here. Yeah. Right. And, and it, it does connect to my initial skepticism when it said that the conventional heat source was exactly 50 degrees Celsius. Mm -hmm. E says, hey, it's not the microwaves. It's the fact that you've got these pockets. And if you raise the temperature to something higher than 50 degrees, that's when the enzymes actually get killed. Yeah. And that didn't happen with the conventional heat source because we were using a conventional heat source of exactly 50 degrees. Mm -hmm. But it's so it's an explanation where, yeah, this is why this happens when it's in the microwave. And it's almost like I understand how you might think that that means that it's the microwaves that are doing the actual killing of the enzymes. Yeah. But that's not actually what's happening. What's happening is there's these heat pockets and that's what's killing the enzymes. Yeah. So I think this we point, can pretty quickly pick E there, yeah? Yeah, pick it and move on. Cool. Hey, we didn't even argue that time, Ben. Well, we didn't argue? Did we argue last time? I don't even remember. We argued last time, yeah. We should oh, okay. we should try we should try another one, see if we can see oh, if we yeah. can. What did we argue off. about? I don't even know. I don't know. I don't know. Well, okay. It's Most fine. We don't want our audience to get scared. Get scared? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe it'll help them not get bored. <laughs> probably already sleeping <laughs> by this point anyway yeah so for yeah for those of you left uh so 15 huh you want to do that one yeah why not okay cool so 15 says a new government policy has been developed to avoid many serious cases of influenza this goal um all right i would just keep reading do you agree yeah this is whatever we got a new policy it's going to avoid many serious cases of influenza. Many just means some. Mm -hmm. um, so that could be three or it could be three million. Yep. Okay. And it's a serious one. So I guess they're worried about the people who are dying or something. Yeah, that we don't even sense. know. What, we, we don't know what serious means. We would assume that that probably includes people who are dying. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a inherently subjective term. Cool. It, the the argument continues. This goal will be accomplished by the annual vaccination of high risk individuals. Colon, everyone sixty five and older, as well as anyone with a chronic disease that might cause harm to them. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah. <laughs> wait. So sorry, everyone sixty five and older, as well as anyone with a chronic disease that might cause them to experience complications from the in influenza virus. Okay, so these are the two groups of people that will be vaccinated, and this this sentence. I mean, did you have the same reaction I did? It says this goal will be accomplished. I thought really. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm naturally skeptical, right? I got that chip on my shoulder for a reason. I'm mm -hmm. I'm just like begging somebody to knock it off. Mm -hmm. And when they say this goal will be accomplished by blah blah blah, I'm saying, whoa, wait a minute, really? Um, yeah. 
Okay, they so this is kind of that sounds like that's probably the conclusion that that the goal will be accomplished. Yeah. Um and then it gives you two two groups of high risk individuals. So now here these are these are premises, right? Cuz this is like here's the the nuts and bolts of what we're going to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We're going to vaccinate everyone 65 and older. Mm-hmm. And we're going to also vaccinate anyone with a chronic disease that might cause them to experience complications from the influenza virus. So we're going to vaccinate these two groups and that's going to help us to avoid uh, many serious cases of influenza. According to the speaker, that goal will be accomplished. Yeah. Okay. The next sentence says each year's vaccination will protect only against the strain of the influenza virus deemed most likely to be prevalent that year. So this sentence goes on, but let's just stop right there. That This is not good, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, the most prevalent virus, um, it, even though it's the most prevalent, there might be 50 other uh, strains of the virus that are also um, prevalent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, furthermore, the most prevalent strain of the virus might not be the one that actually kills people. Sure. In fact, maybe it's prevalent for the exact reason that it doesn't kill people. It keeps people I, walking around, you know? I think that's actually true. I think I remember reading a study once that said the more uh, deadly it is, the less likely a virus is to be yeah, right. contagious. But anyway. Yeah, super. that's true. Super deadly viruses um, are not that smart because they kill the disease vector. And mm-hmm. so if you're not like taking the train and infecting everyone else... Um, well, you, what they want, it, it it should keep you alive long enough that you can spread it a lot, right? And then yeah. you should die. That's yeah. how you would want to design a <laughs> then you should die. virus. If yeah, you were going to design the flu virus to kill everyone, you would want it to just be like totally hidden, no symptoms, super contagious. Yeah. And then after like 30 days, then everybody dies. That yeah. would be the way to do it. There's also something else here too. It says... Each uh, said so each year's will, vaccination will protect only against the strain of the virus deemed. Oh yeah, most likely to be prevalent that year. Well, no, it doesn't okay. even say not. It doesn't even say actually prevalent that year. Yeah, predicted, deemed. I think this is likely. what actually happens, right? They predict what the vo- flu yeah. virus is going to be that year, and they try to make a a vaccine for it. And yeah, I think they pick like three different strains or something like that. Hmm. Yeah. Do you get a so, flu shot, Ben? Um I don't. It's, I feel I feel like a slight bit of uh I'm gonna be shamed here. <laughs> Not from you necessarily. <laughs> I know that people say, Oh, even if you're healthy you're supposed to get it because you could put other people at risk. I uh yeah, I haven't really thought about it a whole lot, but I just don't take the time to go in and get it. So Yeah. Um no, I get one if I'm if I'm around the doctor. Um here uh, at Kaiser, they like they're just in the hallway, like flu shots, flu shot, get your flu shot, it's free. You know, it takes one minute, and they just jab you. Yeah. Um. So I get it if I if I can if I'm around it, but uh, yeah, I never make it like a. So do you get it for the uh, community benefit, or do you get it for yourself? Do you feel like you get the flu a lot? Um, I get it 100% for myself, not for the community. <laughs> and um, um. <laughs> I 
if there's any chance that it's going to help me avoid getting the flu, then it's worth it. Okay. I, yeah. I, I don't know that I get the flu a lot, but I did have the flu like a few years ago and it was absolutely miserable. Yeah. Um, you know, like that total body pain kind of thing, like where you're, it's just, it just is awful and you're just yeah. like laid out for a week or two. Yeah. Um, if it avoids that, I mean, even if it's a 5% chance of avoiding that, it's worth a little stick really? in the arm, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> well, maybe I'll get it. Um, so then this goes on and says, so every year it will be necessary for all high risk individuals to receive a vaccine for a different strain of the virus. Hmm. Hmm. That's a prediction about the future. Yeah. And and now I actually think that that's the conclusion of the argument. I think you're right. It starts with so, it's going after a piece of evidence that initially seemed really bad for what we thought was the conclusion. Right? Yeah, and it's and it's it's this prediction, right? And predictions a lot of times predictions turn out to be the conclusion of an argument yeah. it's hard to have a premise i mean i guess you can if we do this then this will happen that's that can be a premise mm -hmm. but it is also frequently a conclusion if you're making a prediction about the future so um and i have skepticism here as well yeah. um why is it going to be necessary to get a vaccine for a different strain of the virus every year mm. Mm, that's a big problem, especially if you think about, yeah, okay, cool. What's um, your thought? Well, just, is it really a different strain of the virus yeah, every year? It's, it's predicted to be the same every time. What if there is one? Yeah, the super, why can't it be the same strain two years in a row? I don't get yeah. it. Yeah. So there, I have a bit of skepticism about it. It does start with the word, so it's a prediction about the future. I think that's the conclusion. I think and you're right. That makes me revisit, you know, that second sentence that starts off, this goal will be accomplished by. Yeah. And I think we both were like, hey, not so fast. Yeah. But now I think that that's just another way of saying, here's what our plan is. Yeah, I think it's a, a different interpretation of the word accomplished. We're going to go about doing this in this way, but... It's not saying that the goal will actually be achieved or something. Yeah. One thing I, I guess people n might not get is that you need to be a little bit flexible with your thinking or flexible with your reading. Mm -hmm. And that you can read something one way and then you can, after reading the rest of it in context, you might go back and kind of change your understanding of what they were actually saying. Yeah. So, yeah, we thought that was maybe the conclusion of the argument. But here, no, nah, it's just a premise. And... They're not saying we are going to do it for sure. What they're saying is here's how we intend to do it. Yeah. Okay, so bottom line, it'll be necessary for them to receive a different strain, and we're going after that word different, and we're saying does it have to be different, especially if it's deemed that the same one is the prevalent one every year. If it was, if, if you know, flu um, vaccine or flu strain Z, mm -hmm. if that were the, the most prevalent one this year and mm -hmm. all of these people got vaccinated for it, it how do we know it's not going to also be flu strain Z next year that yeah. is the most prevalent? I mean, it was the most prevalent one this year. Why can't it be the most prevalent one again next year? Yeah. So I don't get why we're going to have to drag all of these old folks and sick people in again and give them another shot. 
My thoughts exactly. So then the question says, which one of the following is an assumption that would allow the conclusion to be properly drawn? Um, hmm, what type of question is this? Um, that is a sufficient assumption question. Yeah, and this does. We, we, we have argued about this in the past. It, it's a sufficient assumption question that does not have the word if in it, which That's I think true. is a really, really rare case. Um, yeah, that's right. It does not have the, the word if in it, um, but it does say that we're looking for an assumption that would allow the conclusion above to be properly drawn. And that, that is a, a phrase that is kind of a hallmark of a sufficient assumption question. Yeah. Properly drawn means proven. Mm -hmm. And if we want the conclusion to be proven, then yeah, we're looking for a sufficient condition of the argument. We're looking for something that if true, if we add it to the existing facts, will we'll prove um, that the conclusion of the argument is correct. So we need to, something that goes against what we were saying. We were, we were wondering why couldn't they just not get a vaccine one year because, or a different strain because it was the same as last year's strain. We need something that says the opposite, right? That says, yeah, every year something new is going to be the prevalent one that year yeah. or something like that. Yeah, and we're looking for the biggest sledgehammer we can find, right? Yeah. We're going to walk away from this argument with no doubts about its truth. In Fallout 4, one of the weapons that you can get is a super sledge. Mm. It's a sledgehammer that's powered by a rocket. So you don't just hit somebody with a sledgehammer. You swing the sledgehammer at them, and then you pull the trigger, and the rocket fires, and then you hit them with a rocket-powered sledgehammer. <laughs> That's what cool. I'm looking for here. I'm looking for, on a sufficient assumption question, there's no need to be subtle, right? We're trying to make the argument win. Yeah. So I want to prove it that every year it's gonna be necessary for all high-risk individuals to receive a vaccine for a different strain of the virus. Dude, we didn't even talk about that word all. Man, that's- Yeah, every <laughs> single one of them, yep. That's a really strong conclusion. It's just bad, bad, bad. Yeah, but okay, so we need to prove that, that every single one of those folks needs a different strain. Answer choice A says the number Wait, of individuals- wouldn't individual you predict it? Huh? Wouldn't You'd make a prediction here, wouldn't you? Yeah, I, oh, I thought it was what we were kind of saying, basically that the the virus is going to be different every year. The prevalent one is going to be different. Yeah, yeah. and so a, I think a good answer, because it would, it would address our skepticism, mm -hmm. I think a good answer would be um, the flu vaccine, is, the, the, the flu that is deemed to be uh, most likely to be prevalent that year is different every single year. Yeah. It's never or it's never the same thing twice. How about that? Yeah. But yeah, it's going to use that same language. It's going to tie into their sort of process here. How how would you feel though um then if an answer said um no disease um is ever the same two years in a row. <laughs> um that's interesting. I wouldn't, I would feel, I would definitely keep that open. My only hesitation would be the distinction between what is actually the case and what is deemed to be the case. Okay. What if it was nothing is ever, how about, how about if it was 
nothing is ever deemed to be the case two years in a row or nothing is ever deemed (laughs) nothing is ever deemed to be the case more than once no thing yes yes yes. no thing is ever deemed to be the case more than once i'd love it that would be perfect right and isn't but isn't that weird it doesn't it doesn't say influenza in it doesn't say say virus doesn't say disease nothing about vaccines but it would do it though right yeah it would uh I mean, I think this gets back to our discussion about what is sufficient, right? What is enough or more than enough to prove this conclusion? What is your sledgehammer? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's the rocket-powered sledgehammer, right? It's it's way too much. Mm -hmm. But because this is a sufficient assumption question, there is no such thing as too much. Mm -hmm. So if, if there were an answer that said nothing in the history of the world has ever been deemed and never will be deemed to be the same more than one time, it would be it would be outrageous, right? It's like yeah. building the Golden Gate Bridge to like step across a little creek, mm-hmm. but it does get you where you need to go. Yeah, and so I I would be. It's not my first like order of business on a question like this, but I do want to just point out that there is no such thing on a sufficient assumption question. There is no such thing as an answer that is too strong. Yes, I wanted to say that actually. If you weren't going to say it, and you just said it, but. If you ever find yourself saying, I think this answer is wrong, or I thought this answer was wrong because it's too strong, and it's a sufficient assumption question, you need to you need to grab a rubber band and like hit your hand or something. Oh, wow. <laughs> Self-flagellation. <laughs> it's not going to get any worse than that. Trust me, just a rubber band. That's it. But... <laughs> That is just, it's it's wrong, you know? Maybe, f- the, the, I think the confusion comes from the fact that for a necessary assumption, that's a totally valid way of finding out why an answer choice is wrong. Or Yeah, I find that students just, I, I hear students all the time um, saying, oh, well, I can't, that's too absolute, or that's too strong. Yeah. And then I go, what type of question is it? And they're like, what? Yeah. And And they just don't get that certain questions like strong answers and certain questions like weak answers. And I think it's true that there are a lot of questions on the LSAT that prefer weaker answers. Mm-hmm. Uh, must be true um, for one thing and necessary mm-hmm. assumption for another. Yeah. Both prefer more weakly stated answers. And on a necessary assumption question, it's absolutely the case that there will be an answer that goes too far. And if it goes too far, then it is no longer necessary and it's not the answer. Or a necessary mm-hmm. assumption question. Yeah. But for a sufficient assumption question, all we care about is proving that our argument, that proving our conclusion. That's all we care about. Yeah. And if it also ends up proving a million other conclusions, we don't care. All yeah. we care about is proving the one conclusion that we want proven. So there, there's, yeah, there, there is no such thing as too strong of an answer for this type of question. If we want to be, our goal is to beat up the, the school bully. And if we can get Zeus to come down and do it for us, that's fine. Yeah, with a rocket-powered sledgehammer, <laughs> like that's fine. And and although also he if he beats up every student in the school while he's there, yeah, right. I mean, if if our, if our conclusion was we really need to beat up that kid, he will be beaten up. <laughs> he will be beaten up, and you might get beaten up too by yeah. Zeus with a rocket-powered sledgehammer. But still, the kid did get beaten up, so that would be sufficient. Yeah. That would be enough. It is definitely not necessary, though, right? <laughs> nope. Okay. <clears throat> so did did I even read A? I don't no. remember now. Huh? No. 
Oh, okay, cool. So A says the number of individuals in the high-risk group for influenza will not significantly change from year to year. We do not care if it changes at all or not. Yeah, that just doesn't help us. The, the whole point was, are we going to have to vaccinate everyone every year? And if there are more people in the group, that doesn't change whether or not we're going to have to vaccinate every person in the group. Yeah. I just don't see how that's relevant. No, it's because the conclusion is just limited to the people in that group. It's not limited to the people who are initially in that group or something like that. Yeah. Okay, B. The likelihood that a serious influenza epidemic will occur varies from year to year. So what? That's not the point. You know, It, it, it doesn't address the gap in the argument. Yep. Sufficient assumption questions are very, very predictable. Once you get tuned into them, they're really easy to predict the correct answer. We saw that there was a gap in the logic. We had an objection, right? Our objection was, wait, why can't it be the same virus two years in a row? Yeah. And there's no way that this argument can be proven as long as that objection still remains. Yeah. Um, so we need an answer that's going to address that objection. Um, something like B saying, hey, some years there's not even a serious influenza epidemic it's just it's just so what it is not related to the hole in the argument that we need to plug yeah so c says no vaccine for the influenza virus protects against more than one strain of that virus oh okay so this is first of all this is very strong no vaccine for the flu protects against more than one strain of that virus. But um, I have a hesitation here. Yeah, well, does it kill our, what was our primary objection again? Our objection was what if the same strain appears again, right? Yeah, and if C is true, Mm -hmm. there is no vaccine that protects against more than one strain, I feel like we still might not have to vaccinate everybody two years in a row if it's the same strain two years in a row. Yeah. So C does seem like it would help the argument. It's kind of at least going in the right direction, but it does not defeat our primary objection. Yeah. And as long as that objection is still alive, I don't think we have found a sufficient assumption of the argument. Yeah. I think this is probably going after people who might have thought, oh, well, the virus for one or the vaccine for one strain could help against the virus of a different strain or something like that. But this still doesn't address all the issues like you're saying. And so it's not good enough. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can see how, you know, it is a weakness of the argument, right? Mm-hmm. It could be like, well, although, wait a minute. I mean, it's even a fact of the argument. Each year's vaccination will protect only against the strain of the influenza virus deemed most likely to be prevalent that year. Oh, yeah, there you go. So I that, almost think C is obviated by the facts. Oh, it is. Yeah, yeah. now that you point that out. So if it it's restating uh, a premise, or at least it's going a little bit beyond the... Uh, the premise, because the premise is just talking about each year's vaccination. This is saying, well, this is true for all vaccinations related right. to the flu. But that doesn't help us. We already knew that about the vaccination that we were going to use anyway. Yeah, the ones so, that we yeah. care about. 
Yeah, C doesn't do anything. Cool. Okay. D. Each year, the strain of influenza virus deemed most likely to be prevalent will be one that had not previously been deemed most likely to be prevalent. Oh. Perfect. Yeah. And Perfect. And it uses that language, too. That kills my objection. Oh, the deemed most likely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that kills our objection. Our objection was, hey, what if it's the same virus as last year? And D says, nope. The strain of influenza virus deemed most likely is never going to be the same one again. Yep. Um, well, in that case, I guess we better call in all the old folks and the sick people and give them another vaccine. Yeah, so at this point, I'd be really, really happy that I found an answer that I was satisfied with. I would start reading E, and I would stop at the phrase side effects. Sure, yeah. Each year's vaccine will have fewer side effects. Nope, that's it. Our answer is D. We already found exactly what we were looking for. When E starts going off sideways into some other tangent, that uh, side effects can't be relevant here. Yeah. Sufficient assumption questions, Ben, I think are a really good opportunity for um, people who are still, you know, not where they want to be on the logical reasoning. Yeah. Um, I know people struggle with them a lot, but I just, I find myself predicting exactly the answer Mm -hmm. so frequently on these sufficient assumption questions. And I think that a lot of people who end up scoring in the 170s would agree that once they get the hang of it, I think sufficient assumption questions kind of become your best friend. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, sufficient means proven, you know? Like, we're looking for... We're looking to make an argument watertight. Mm -hmm. And that just has a very specific meaning on the LSAT. I mean, you have to... all All of the connections have to be made. You have to just... Take the premises that you already have. You're going to get one more premise, and then that will prove the conclusion. Yeah, one way to think about this is that if an argument has three problems, let's say, and you identify one of them in a sufficient assumption question, the correct answer has to address that problem and the other two. So you're going to spot an answer that fixes that problem. Whereas in a necessary assumption question, if there are three problems, the correct answer may be addressing a problem that you didn't think about. And so there are more possible answers, which I would think is why it's harder to predict. Yeah, necessary assumption questions have like infinite possible answers, mm-hmm. right? Because there are infinite possible weakeners mm-hmm. and there's a necessary assumption that protects against every one of those infinite possible weakeners. So it's necessary assumption questions. I'm frequently surprised by the correct answer where I'll, I'll, I'll end up finding the right answer and I'll go, oh, shit. Wow, I didn't even think about that. But, you know, that has to be true or else imagine what the opposite of this would say. If this were false, the argument's going to be in big trouble. So even though I didn't predict it at all, that's going to be the answer for a necessary assumption question. And I'll yeah. be surprised when I read it. Yeah. Sufficient assumption questions, I'm like never surprised. I, I already know what the answer is before I read the, the, the answer choices on most sufficient assumption questions. Yeah. Cool. Well, um, that was pretty good. Once again, we did not fight. 
Uh, I don't know. You want to argue about anything? <laughs> no. <laughs> hey, I haven't seen it yet, but did did you guys go see Star Wars? Don't spoil yeah. me. Yeah. What would you think? Um. Okay, so it was That's really not good. Super enthusiastic. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, it was really good. There were a lot of good things that were really good about it, and I don't want to do any spoilers here, but there was one sort of core aspect, like if you break a movie into five, ten different core aspects, there was one core aspect that I thought they really bombed on. Whoa. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, um, I guess you don't want to say more than that because you don't want to spoil it, which I no. appreciate. My, um, I spent my Christmas trying to not talk to my eight-year-old niece about Star Wars because she saw it and apparently she is incapable of talking about it for more than like 30 seconds without bringing like some major spoiler. <laughs> so every time it came up, I just started like, la, 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 la. Bye. <laughs> Sorry, Haley, I'm not talking to you about that. Um, that's okay. She her, she doesn't have much of an attention span, so <laughs> get her talking about Legos instead. That's funny. Cool. All right. Well, um, thanks, Ben. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, you know, you can get us uh, via email, help at thinkinglsat.com. You can also tweet at thinkinglsat. Anything else we need to add, Ben? No, that's all. Cool. Well, um, I guess people will be hearing this in the new year. So uh, happy new year. And we will be back in a couple weeks with episode 52. Cool. Thanks. Thanks.